for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Kristen Stoneking, the senior pastor here. And I'm Brian Adkins, associate pastor. Our mission here is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with a scripture reading and a message. I looked over Jordan, what did I see? Coming forth to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming forth to carry me Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I will be using God's word translation. Then an expert in Moses' teachings stood up to test Jesus. He asked, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him and said, What is written in Moses' teachings? What do you read there? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus told him, You're right. Do this, and life will be yours. But the man wanted to justify his question. So he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, robbers stripped him, beat him, and left him for dead. By chance, a priest was traveling along the road. When he saw the man, he went around him and continued on his way. Then a Levite came to that place. When he saw the man, he too went around him and continued on his way. But a Samaritan, as he was traveling along, came across the man. When the Samaritan saw him, he felt sorry for the man. He went to him and cleaned and bandaged his wounds. 
Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day the Samaritan took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. He told the innkeeper, Take care of him. If you spend more than that, I will pay you on my return trip. Of these three men, who do you think was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by robbers? The expert said, the one who was kind enough to help him. Jesus told him, go and imitate his example. That was Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. Thanks be to God for the reading of this word. to be here. Well, not here. I mean, here is the desk in my home office, but you know what I mean. Before we start, a few provisos. Uh, first, given the rapid-fire manner in which news has developed over the past couple of weeks, I must say that uh, by the time you hear and see what I'm speaking of today, uh, Sunday morning, uh, it may all be totally irrelevant. But then those of you who know me well know that often what I'm speaking of is totally irrelevant, so not a problem. The other strange thing is that there's no interaction. I can't see your faces. Uh, there's no back and forth. I don't know how to react. Like, I don't know if you just laughed at that funny. Uh, I don't know if you'll be laughing at any of my jokes, so um, there will be no humor. Now, I'm honored to have the opportunity to address you, my beloved congregation, on this, the Sunday before Juneteenth. So, first, let's get the facts about Juneteenth straight, as there are many varied versions. Juneteenth is originally a Texas observance. It celebrates the day, June 19, 1865, when the slaves of Texas were officially freed. As with many observances of this nature, the celebration of the undoing of an evil thing, there's an element of wry irony that goes with it. There's always been, to me, some tongue-in-cheek to the celebration of, an official, of the official granting of freedom to the slaves in Texas on June 19, 1865, about a year and a half after the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. A number of reasons are given for this delay, some of them nonsensical. Keep in mind, there was a war on, and it didn't end, really, until two months before Juneteenth. 
But it was June 19, 1865, when General Gordon Granger arrived by ship at Galveston with 2,000 United States troops and announced that, and I'm quoting, the people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. Now, I'm a California boy, born at Alta Bates, brought up here in El Cerrito. But like a great many black Californians, I'm a product of the second great migration, the migration from the South, primarily Texas, uh, to the Bay Area, or to California. My mother's family came to the Bay Area from Beaumont, Texas in 1942 to work in the war effort. And like the type of barbecue that they serve at Everett and Jones or the now defunct Flint's, uh, transplanted Texans brought with them their holiday, Juneteenth. So I grew up, I grew up with the observance. But this year, at this time, Juneteenth as a celebration of black freedom has taken on a new feeling. There has been, I believe, a change in the conversation, a change in the conversation. Many of you may remember that I spoke before the congregation in February during Black History Month. The message, you may recall, was a rather grim assessment of the overwhelming presence and influence of racism in America. The message lamented the complete institutionalization of its evil in our nation. It declared racism a force so inextricably interwoven into the fabric of our society that its extrication seemed near impossible. Even we, you and I, could not avoid, I stated at the time, our own internal racism. I talked about the racist practices at Airbnb and those regarding Colin Kaepernick's taking a knee when the national anthem is played before NFL games. We were all willing to accept the institutionalization of racism in a relatively brand spanking new institution, Airbnb. Moreover, we all acknowledge that had a white player, say the ever popular regular guy, every man from the New England Patriots, Rob Gunkowski, the Gronk, had the Gronk chosen on his own to lodge the same protest for the same reason, the continued brutalization and killing of his black brothers, not because he grew up in a black neighborhood or because he had played alongside black teammates all of his life but because he, Rob Gronkowski, could not bear to see his people, black people, continually victimized without speaking out. We admitted that we would not have believed it. My point then, as it is now, was that until America, meaning white Americans, truly feels the pain that too heavily defines being black in America, bearing up under the continued daily strain of racism's heavy burden. Racism will continue to define all of our lives. I focused then, as I do now, on the Apostle Luke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I love the parable of the Good Samaritan. What I find instructive is the insistent lesson that we must become one truly one, in order to ever reach our goal of racial justice. For a white person in America, becoming truly one with one's fellow black person almost surely requires dedication and sacrifice 
emotionally, spiritually, and financially. It is significant first that Jesus is relating the parable to his fellow Jews. The Samaritans were, I understand, not mere outsiders, but considered by Jews to be a despised enemy. And here, Jesus tells a story where a Samaritan is the hero. But what I really like is the degree to which the Samaritan gives of himself to help the injured man, who, the whole point being, is not one of his people. I mean, he really puts himself out there. He uses his own oil and wine to dress the man's wounds. He puts the man on his own ass, takes him to an inn where he pays for his lodging and leaves him with an open tap. It is made clear here that truly loving one's neighbor involves significant cost and risk. I doubted in February that such willingness to incur such costs and run such risk existed among our comfortable, white, relatively affluent mainstream population. After all, ours was an America that could and did watch every minute of a video recording of Eric Garner a black man accused of selling unlicensed single cigarettes on a street corner, getting slowly, but surely, killed at the hands of the New York Police Department, and conclude that nothing could be done about it. No charges were filed. Five years later, the officer that did the actual killing, that actually compressed Mr. Garner's windpipe and carotid artery with his bare hands until he finally died, got fired over the vigorous protests of his union. His congressman said that it was not racism, that it was Mr. Garner's own fault that he died. He was too fat. Uh, Mr. The president, President Obama, a black man, said that the incident represented an American tragedy. An American problem is what he called it. The February message, I must admit, held out little help. I gave up and admitted this mess won't be cleaned up by the time I die. But, I stated at the time, I have hope. I hope, long, and indeed pray for another movement. A movement akin to the now revered, increasingly ancient civil rights movement. The urgency of now is what that movement embodied, with white people participating as avidly as their black siblings. We, you and me, could be part of such a movement. We, you and me, must be part of such a movement. White America, I said, had to realize that in the words of the Statue of Liberty poet Emma Lazarus, until we are all free, we are none of us free. The message did not conclude sweetly. There was no applause. It was not a hopeful message. Today, my fellow Upworthians, the message is much more hopeful. The conversation has been changed. We have, in the past couple of weeks, been witness to an extraordinary change in our social landscape across the nation. It's a change for which conditions were ripe. Circumstances were already dire, given a worldwide pandemic, shelter-in-place orders, Illness and death related to the plague disproportionately borne by non-white people. There was widespread concern about the mental health of a people beleaguered by disease. Things, it seemed, could not get worse. Then the video surfaced. 
Now the video has been discussed and discussed, then discussed some more. But bear with me. I should tell you, it's in fact, it's my duty to tell you just how sick the recording made me feel. It's my duty because I believe I've experienced more detention by police officers than most of our congregation. A few years back, I was asked by our previous pastor, Linda Lossberg-Zoll, to participate in a service recounting moments when I felt when I felt like an outsider in my own country. I spoke to the congregation about the numerous instances in various jurisdictions where I had been detained, mostly while driving, but sometimes on foot, once on a bicycle, by police. <clears throat> I interspersed my talk with droning listings of the different places, from Berkeley's campus to Milestone Road in Nantucket Island, from 125th and Lenox in Harlem to a lonely highway in Elko, Nevada. Indeed, I have probably been detained to one degree or another for varying periods of time at least 60 times. To know the feeling of being completely in police custody, having the cuffs on, being in the back of a cruiser, being in a cell, trying to hide from the surveillance camera in the cell, being under the total control of someone else, and having no idea what's going to happen next, is a feeling like no other. Running that gauntlet has been a distinct part of my, of my existence. And it prepared me well for another round of dealing with the authorities once my son, who is now 34 and has made it through so far, once he became potential quark. I hear frequently about black parents having the talk, the talk with their adolescent sons, about how to behave during encounters with the police. No need for that, really. My kids were in the backseat at least a half a dozen of the countless times I was pulled over. They heard me strike the right tone, uh, you know, uh, respectful, acknowledging that his authority and power, but uh, authoritative enough so that he knows that I might be somebody. Uh, humble, acknowledging that he may have had reason to detain me, but uh, palsy enough so that he might identify with me. It's a delicate balance. It's a fine art. But when the potential for being trussed and hauled downtown is there, one's verbal skills are one's only weapon. I wanted my kids to watch and learn this, and they did. So having been in that horrible, helpless place called police custody in person, and by proxy with my, with my, my little boy, watching the recorded death George Floyd, helpless while in such custody, brought on a feeling, a trauma that surprised me greatly. And apparently, I was not alone. I thought of taking a break for a second, but I'll be okay. <clears throat> Author and New York Times contributor Roxanne Gay wrote a piece called No One's Coming to Save Us, in which she despaired over the warfare that has been waged upon black America in the 21st century alone. Gary May, the chancellor at UC Davis, the first African-American to be such, penned a, case, a piece called It Could Have Been Me, 
because, indeed, in reality, it could have been him. Or me. It seemed to me that things were getting more hopeless than ever. Then they got worse. Across the country, where protests arose over police brutality, police thought that the best way to respond was with some more police brutality. In Louisville, in response to protests about, in addition to the death of George Floyd, the death of Breonna Taylor a few weeks ago in her, by the police in her own home. In response to protests about that, police shot seven more people. The president, with seeming determination and direction, refused to respond to the obscene public killing with anything approaching appropriateness and propriety. His reaction to cases of rioting and looting was, well, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. You know, one of my best friends was talking about leaving the country. This place is a mess, thought I. Now, only a portion of the video was generally aired publicly. Because most of it consisted of long, long, boring footage of a Minneapolis police officer, face impassive, left hand in his pants pocket, right knee on the neck of a begging, pleading, Minneapolis citizen, casually, easily killing that citizen, a black man, man named George Floyd. But something about that footage, maybe its graphic nature, maybe the close-up shot of expressions of the victim's face, maybe the sound of helpless passers-by begging for the man's life, but powerless to, to, to summon the authority to stop it. What are they going to do, call cops? Maybe the casual manner in which the fellow officers, fellow officers stood by, heading off any possible interference, while Mr. Floyd's most precious thing, his life, was slowly tugged away from him by their buddy. Whatever it was, it appears that the soul of a nation was finally touched. Perhaps, my fellow congregants, perhaps my dream, a prayer for a highly energized, honest, focused, racially inclusive movement will be answered. The conversation has been changed. Now here, I realize, upon rereading, I go a little too deeply into historical de detail. It's a weakness of mine. To make the point that the only anti-racism movements that have historically gained any traction in America are those wherein everyone, white people included, joined the cause. The fight for the liberation of black people in America has been constant and unending. We've all heard anecdotally of the Underground Railroad, the Nat Turner Rebellion, the abolitionist movement, John Brown, and ultimately the Civil War. We know to a lesser degree about Reconstruction and its destruction and the lynching and disenfranchisement that were part of their destruction. There have always been awful stories about the Ku Klux Klan and its reign of terror throughout the South in the late 19th and 20th century, throughout the South, and Indiana, and Ohio. Okay. While mainstream America, white America, knows about these things and knows that they were and are wrong, that knowledge often seemed abstract. Was difficult, near impossible, it seemed, for white people in their hearts, minds, and souls to actually feel the pain borne on a constant and daily basis by black people. Now, don't get me wrong, I do not throw blame. 
But I do acknowledge the degree to which racism and blindness to racism is at the very core of our culture. Our culture has been carefully and efficiently constructed to make the occurrence and acceptance of racism comfortable. We also live in a culture carefully and efficiently constructed to make the fighting of racism, particularly by white people, uncomfortable. As a result, it seems that an unseen, unnamed force in society historically keeps its metaphorical knee on our neck. And it's only battled by wave after wave of movements toward justice, and some are more successful than others. And it seems, upon casual observation, that the more successful movements are those that capture the hearts, or better, attract the participation of white people. Matt Turner's rebellion was mercilessly crushed. Uh, in fact, in response to it, they built the Citadel, um, the South's version of West Point, so that they could administer some more crushings should they become necessary. Uh, the Underground Railroad, with the help of the Society of Friends and other abolitionists, was, for what it was, successful. The abolitionist movement of the 19th century required, of course, the heavy involvement of white people. William Lloyd Garrison published an anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator, out of Boston. Uh, the movement dovetailed nicely with the uh, suffrage movement. Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott worked closely with Frederick Douglass and with the abolitionist movement. Lucretia Mott, a Quaker, was known as a particularly effective abolitionist. Reconstruction, generally thought to have begun with the Federal Reconstruction Act of 1867, was intended to uh, reintegrate the southern states and their four million newly freed slaves into the United States. For a brief period, in many cases backed by federal troops, it was black voting and the election of black people to local, state, and federal offices. But in 19, by 1878, political shifts in Congress and the executive office, as the White House was then known, resulted in the withdrawal of federal troops and the literal end of an era. Hence, the frequent announcement of the first black fill-in-the-blank mayor, congressman, senator, since Reconstruction. That's what that means. The abrupt withdrawal of the federal troops to enforce the federal laws uh, allowed the southern states to take over their own governance. The Klan was born, anti-black legislation grew and flourished. It gave birth to Jim Crow, the version of the South that I grew up with, with whites-only and colored-only signs, signs all over the place. The Civil Rights Movement, to which I referred in February, is a reference to a series of activities during the 60s and 70s after the anti-racism tactics of the early, uh, early 20th century, which were mostly litigation, uh, legislation, and uh, lobbying, legislation lobbying, and public education, and morphed into more direct action tactics, which were, were, generally speaking, protest activities. Marches, boycotts, sit-ins, that were collectively described as nonviolent resistance. Sit-ins, the occupation of segregated lunch counters 
and facilities by black people only to be denied service and arrested and arrested took place starting during the summer of 64. A wealth of separate organizations participated in the civil rights movement, a veritable alphabet soup, the SCLC, SNCC, the NAACP. The high point of the movement, many agree, was the massive August 28, 1963 March on Washington. Now, the March on Washington, to me, represented the kind of cooperative movement of which I speak. 250,000, a quarter of a million people attended. It was originally intended to end at the Capitol, but plans were altered so the Congress wouldn't feel under siege. The march of this terminal was the Lincoln Memorial. The speakers facing a massive crowd gathered on the National Mall. Now, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was just a kid, 34 by my calculation. So he willingly took an end-of-the-day slot. My son is 34. Anyway, the high shots wanted to speak earlier so they could make the news cycle, back when there was such a thing as a news cycle. And Dr. King had only intended to speak for four minutes, but it grew to 16. And he was getting near the end of his prepared remarks when Mahalia Jackson, the gospel singer, who had apparently heard him preach similarly before, shouted, Tell him about the dream, Martin. So Dr. King spoke that from memory, as well as from the heart, when he delivered his most widely quoted words. And people who know those words sometimes never even heard about the march. JFK opposed the march, fearing bad reaction from Southern Democrats in Congress. But when Mr. Randolph and Mr. Ruskin stood their ground, he got with the program. He got the white uh, clergy on the national level involved. He enlisted Walter Ruther, the president of the, of the then very powerful UAW, to turn out white support for the march. Its universal appeal accounted for its universal success. To be sure, there were, during the 60s, terrible, deadly riots in many American cities. Most of those were, then as now, triggered by police brutality toward and the killing of black men. Then as now, there was looting and arson. Then, as now, there was bellicose bellowing from some of our leaders about law and order. But the civil rights movement somehow captured the imagination of America. In its wake came the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Fair Housing Act of 1968. This legislation and the court cases that followed have formed the basis of much of the incursion into racism that has been made in America since. These laws are the recourse that black people have had to defend our rights since then. To be sure, there have been, in the years since, more terrible and deadly riots in our cities, triggered, as always, by the wanton cruelty of police officers. And to be sure, there have been more movements. Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, they got attention for a while, but then they were marginalized. I haven't witnessed, however, a reaction, a universal reaction, meaning white people too, like, like that to the killing of George Floyd. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. That's Ecclesiastes at chapter 3. From what I have observed in the weeks since this horrible video surfaced, there is a change in the overall American attitude, for lack of a better word. And believe me, I tried to find a better word. 
it's difficult to express. But as a black person, it seems that suddenly, unbelievably, America is on our side. It's as though the graphic close-up murder of one of us suddenly made all of America believe what we have been saying all along. Unlike the Eric Garner case and so many others, the police officers involved in this ugly fracas were immediately fired rather than five years later. Murder and other charges related to homicide have been filed against them. Unlike the Eric Garner case and so many others, condemnation from all officials involved, the chief of police, the mayor, Senator Amy Klobuchar, everyone but the president, was immediate and severe. Unlike the Eric Garner case and so many others, this case has resulted in several, a dozen at last count, police departments eliminating the chokehold slash knee compression from their enforcement bag of tricks. Unlike the Eric Gardner case and so many others, condemnation of the killing was worldwide. An example of just one press account. I'm quoting here. The police killing of George Floyd has triggered anti-racism protests throughout the world. A number of monuments with links to colonialism and slavery have been defaced or pulled down in Europe and the United States as protests for racial justice continue. Unlike the Eric Garner case and so many others, that the killing was a racist act has not been denied, but readily recognized and realized widely as a slow systematic killing of a black man because he was a black man. When I spoke to you in February about the Garner case, I said, quoting from myself here. I bring this case up because it illustrates best, perhaps, the deep, deep institutionalization of racism in our American society. It also illustrates the most essential, insidious feature of the practice of racism, the denial that it even occurred. This gaslighting has been a feature of the oppression of the Africans since the beginning of European imperial colonization of the rest of the world. Either it's not even happening, or if it is and it can't be credibly denied, it wasn't a matter of race. That stance, I now believe, is no longer the case. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going all Pollyanna on this. I'm too old. I'm too cynical. What I do see is this. From time to time, a racist incident occurs that is so blatant that it shocks the conscience of a nation that deems itself to be fair. Then a leap in progress is made. The 2015 murder of nine black worshipers in Charleston, South Carolina, triggered, among other things, a reaction against the official flying of the Confederate battle flag. Ultimately, the battle flag was removed from the statehouse grounds and, and many other significant places throughout the South, throughout the country, for that matter. These murders, inexplicably, changed that conversation. Now I don't have to listen to the drivel about the battle flag being merely a statement of Southern pride with nothing racist about it. It took those horrible killings for America to admit what we have been saying all along, that the battle flag is offensive, threatening, such an admission totally changed that conversation. It's a big step. 
what I see happening all around us is another big step. All over the place, it seems that everyone is admitting that what has been oppressive, offensive, threatening, and dangerous to black people forever is indeed oppressive, offensive, threatening, and dangerous. On the pop culture front, Lady Annabellum, the country rock trio, has changed its name stating that they didn't realize it represented a painful time in this nation. NASCAR has decided to stop flying the stars and bars at their events. I believe that they promised to ban the fans from flying it too, but we'll see when the fans are allowed out again. So that conversation has changed. Sweetest to me, having complained so bitterly about the NFL in February, is the fact that its commissioner, Roger Goodell, has apologized. Not to Colin Kaepernick, but generally, announcing, and I'm quoting, we, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit that we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier, and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We have it here. It's on the record. It's in the books. The conversation has changed once again. A time to plant. A time to pluck up that which is planted. And so, my fellow Epworthians, today I have hope. And I gleefully urge you to join me perhaps with this particular lurch forward in the conversation about race. We will get closer to our goal of an America with room to fit us all. I thank you and amen. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. Me stand. I am tired. I am weak. I am warm. Through the storm, through the night. Lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. You've been listening to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Brian Adkins, associate pastor here. We'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. If you are here in Berkeley, Epworth's worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 1953 Hopkins Street at the corner of Napa and Hopkins. And I'm senior pastor Kristen Stoneking. If you connect to our podcast from further away, we would invite you to visit our website, epworthberkeley.org. We'd invite you to keep seeking to grow in faith and to stop by the next time you're in Berkeley.
Thank you.